0: We are back to the school of Jesus this morning. Jesus is still talking about the work of the gospel, and he's doing it still by reference to sowing and seeds. Seeds, plants, gardens, all things organic. That's one of the chief analogies for Christian spirituality in the New Testament. I can't help but think that Jesus prepared all of this with Vancouver in mind. We know from verse 14 earlier in Mark chapter 4 that the word seed in the context of this chapter refers to God's word. The seed refers to God's Word. That's what it signifies. God's Word is what Jesus brings, but God's Word isn't just what He brings. It's also what Jesus is. He is God's Word. That's why John's gospel calls Him the Word made flesh. And today the Word made flesh is talking about the growth of His kingdom. How does that growth happen? What does it involve? These are the big questions in the text today, and I think what Jesus says is very up-to-date for us. Now, if the original disciples had been asked to pick an image for the growth of the kingdom of God, I don't think seed sowing is what they would have chosen. I don't think it would have been their first choice. I think they, they may have picked the image of a mighty lion prowling around the jungle, a metaphor associated with power and the capacity to make people submit. That's the impression you get at least from the story that we encounter in Luke chapter 9. In Luke 9, Jesus is in a Samaritan village and He's unfavorably received. And how do his disciples respond? Let me read you their suggestion. Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume these people? In other words, Lord, can we nuke the Russians? (laughs) And what does Jesus say? Shut the front door. That's what he says. He rebukes them for that ludicrous idea. Now, in many world religions, and Christianity has not always been the exception, I'm sad to say. There are people who operate like that. The truth of God should be pressed upon people with force and dominance. There are people like that out there today. But the God whose revelation stands at the center of Christianity says no such thing. He doesn't talk about lightning bolts or revolutions or crusades or even culture wars. Jesus is not an arm wrestler. He's a farmer. He talks about seeds and sowing. By the way, when Jesus is talking about His kingdom and the coming of the kingdom, For those of you who may not be familiar with that language, he's not speaking about a geographical territory with a physical throne, that's not what he's talking about. He's referring to areas of human society over which God is Lord. He's speaking about human lives and human culture wherein devotion to God is given concrete and tangible expression. That's what the kingdom of God is referring to. Now building on what Jesus told us last week, Alistair's sermon on the first part of the parable seeds. Jesus continues to speak about the kingdom with reference to seeds. And he gives us two more little parables, seed parables here. So we're going to begin by walking through these two very short parables. And then in light of what we learn from them, we're going to go back and look at the first few verses, verses 21 through 25, because they can be a bit tricky to understand otherwise. And in today's lesson, Jesus is going to show us that the expansion of God's kingdom is pretty unique. It's pretty counterintuitive. And while it involves human effort, it is not finally dependent upon our efforts. Look with me now at verses 26 through 29. And Jesus said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and then the seed sprouts and it grows, and he knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. And when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. God's Word. Now, in these verses, we read about a certainty, a secret, and then a second certainty. Some of you might be thinking the only thing certain right now is that you need a nap. Try to stay with us if you can. There's some good stuff in this passage. Certainty number one. We need to focus here on the work of planting in verse 26. Sowing, planting seed, that's our task. That's clear from Mark chapter 4 overall. We are a people who are to scatter God's Word. We are to share Jesus with those around us, with our voices, with our actions and deeds. In selecting this particular image for our part in the growth of God's kingdom, Jesus is making a pretty profound point. In its original pre-industrial form, sowing seed was something that anybody could do. A baby could drop a seed into the ground, even the most old and fragile hand could put a kernel into the soil. Nothing anybody could do, and that's a good thing because the, God's Word urgently needs to be sowed, right? Of that you can be certain. The New Testament cautions us against assuming that human beings will, in and of themselves, come to feel their need for Christ. Right? Romans 10 says that's a faulty assumption. This is what St. Paul says, how will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? Faith comes from hearing. Hearing what? God's Word. The Bible says that that need, the need to hear God's Word, applies to every type of person. Rich and poor, all tribes and nations, every Myers-Briggs type. Every type of person. Certainly true in Vancouver. A friend of mine was recently visiting a jewelry store in this city, and she noticed another customer in that jewelry store, and a customer was interested in a necklace that had a a cross pendant on the end of it. The sales associate took it out of the jewelry box and then the customer asked this question, who is that man pinned to the center of that cross? And the sales associate replied, I have no idea, but I'll make an inquiry. We have a task, the need for sowing God's word is certain. Let's reflect now on the secret. Look at verses 27 and 28. This is where we read about the germination of the seed. Once it's in the ground, something happens and that is not something that we do. That is not something we do. We can't make germination. Only the Lord makes that. There's a little bit of secret and mystery in this process. The clue here and the point Jesus is making is in verse 29. The phrase, the earth produces by itself. Right. That's a Greek, the Greek word there is automati, from which we get automatic. From which we get automatic. What's Jesus saying in all of this? I'll tell you what he's saying. He's putting a lesson to something I learned over many, many summers growing up in South Kakalaki also known as South Carolina. some of you will know this, I've spent many hours, days, weeks working on a farm. In my high school years, I worked for two chief farmers, dad and uncle. I was the maintenance manager, overseeing a crew of one, yours truly. Now, among my other duties were corn planting and fence building, both of typical farm work, but they're very different. With corn, I'd make the row, I'd drop in the seeds, pitch the fertilizer, cover it up a little bit, and then apart from that, and apart from occasionally turning on the irrigation if we had a drought, all I had to do was wait. Fence building was another ball game. I'd go plant the post in the ground, I'd measure out and cut the wire, I'd run it along the perimeter, and then I'd go home and I'd come back the next day, and guess what? Nothing had happened. Once I even waited two or three months, nothing happened. (laughs) If I didn't do anything, no fence got built. Which is why fence building was the punishment that I worked out, with support from the local sheriff, for a group of hooligans who once robbed the barn. They built some fence. I planted the corn. The emergence of the kingdom is more like corn planting than fence building, and thank goodness. In other words, the kingdom's growth is not something that we manage. We don't control it. The outcome isn't ours. The most important event in this little parable, the transformation of that seed happens while the farmer's asleep. Don't miss that. If you don't see this, you're destined for trouble. Let me explain different types of trouble. On the one side, if we think we have to manage and oversee and strategize the whole process by which the kingdom of God grows, then some of us are going to immediately feel overwhelmed and incompetent. So we're not going to do anything. We're going to be apathetic. But God doesn't call us to manage. He calls us to sow. On the other side, if, if we're in a management mindset, we've got to make this thing happen, we're actually at the risk, and this is more true for some than others, of impeding on God's work. Think of it this way. If you plant a seed and you continually dig it up to check the status of that seed to see how it's germinating, well, you're not going to have much corn to show later on because you're disrupting the rooting process. You're impeding it. Someone's going to slap your hands. Same thing applies for the growth of the kingdom. Sometimes our efforts to manage can actually be meddling. And that results in problems. It results, on the one hand, in the problem of resistance. People don't like being badgered. They go the other way. On the other hand, it can result in the problem of inauthentic commitment to Christ. You end up with a seed on the rocks situation. Alistair talked about that that last week, verses 4 and 5. There's a sensational commitment to Jesus, and then it quickly expires. I've seen that happen. We're not that kind of church here. We don't want to build the kingdom in the wrong way. We don't want to resort to manipulation to get results. Now, in an effort to minimize those types of problems, Jesus is saying that the Word of God, His Word, has an intrinsic power. And that power, the capacity of the Word to transform, is not tied so much to how we use it as much as to how the Holy Spirit uses God's Word. Did you get that? How the Spirit of God uses God's Word. That's what the Old Testament prophet Isaiah means when he says this, the Word of the Lord does not return to him empty. God's Word is effectual. It's because of God's power in the Spirit. That's why God's Word is effectual, not because of all of our energies and all of our efforts. It's mostly because of God's Spirit. So Jesus in a sense is relativizing our part, but He's not negating it. He's just relativizing it. Right? We play a part, but it's minor compared to the part that God himself plays. The great British preacher from the Victorian period, C.H. Spurgeon, puts it like this, to create the divine life in a person is God's work. To cherish it is our work. Just as the power of God resurrected Jesus from the dead, so now that very same power, and that's real power, is at work in this world through God's word. All holy results depend on God. That's the secret of the kingdom's expansion. We don't construct the kingdom, we witness to it. We're corn planters, not fence builders. And because we're corn planters, we should be ready for a harvest. That leads us to certainty number two. According to Jesus here in verse 29, the yield of the seed is a certainty. If you planted a garden and nothing, absolutely nothing grew out of the ground, you'd be shocked, surprised, befuddled, right? You plant things with an expectation. You take it for granted that the seed will germinate and grow. That's why I scattered corn in that garden in hot, muggy South Carolina for all those years, right? Not because I found the work of planting innately enjoyable. It wasn't. Look how much it burnt my face. You see that? That's what I look like all the time, Put me at risk for skin cancer. In the very same way, Jesus says we should trust in God's Word to burgeon and bear fruit. That should be our expectation. We should be confident in the capacity of God's Word, used by God's Spirit to convert and transform lives. We should be confident, but are we confident? Are we confident in its capacity for that? That's the question of the hour. How do you know if you have that confidence? One of the best ways to know is to look at your actions or the lack therein. How do you interact with the Bible? When you think about your spiritual health and going deeper, where do you turn? How do you counsel other people about that when they say they're feeling a bit dry? Where do you look first? What's your default? Is it Holy Scripture? Jesus says, if you want to encounter me, don't jolt into the mountains and into the woods. Don't even look within yourself. Don't even run to C.S. Lewis. Look at Holy Scripture. Go there first. That's where it's clearest. That's where it's most trustworthy. That's where it's most powerful. The Gideon Bible Society knows this. You know about the Gideons? That's why they continue to put Bibles in every motel room that they can. Have you ever given the Bible to someone as a gift? Last year, a study of Christian spirituality was conducted and guess what they found? The number one factor in church growth and spiritual growth, right? Not just in terms of size, but in terms of depth, in terms of delight in God, reliance on Christ. Number one factor wasn't community, Wasn't social outreach. Wasn't even programs. Those are all good and important things. But the number one factor was reading the Bible. Vastly overshadowed the others. Of this we can be certain. God's Word is a fertile seed. It makes things happen. And that's exactly what Jesus broadcast even more loudly in the second little parable. So let's turn to that now. Look at verses 30 and 32 with me if you would. And Jesus said... With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown into the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth, yet when it has sown, it grows and becomes larger than all the garden plants, puts out large branches so all the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. An immense yield from a tiny little seed. The mustard seed's among the smallest seeds out there, right? But the plant that grows from it is enormous, striking, extraordinary. In other words, the kingdom of God can have a very inconspicuous beginning, small, insignificant-seeming. But it will grow into vast and incredible influence. That's what Jesus is saying here, right? The, the seed metaphor is perfect for this. I did some math for you this week. One small corn seed will turn into a plant that produces four ears, if it's not a GMO, that is, right? A regular corn plant. Four ears, and each of those ears has 800 kernels, so that's a yield of 3,200. Wowzers. 3,200. You begin to get the picture. There's a story of Thomas Edison, the inventor of many things light bulb, uh, phonograph. He went to visit Queen Victoria. He wanted to present her with a phonograph, the first sound recorder. That was the pre- precursor to Spotify and Apple Music, the phonograph. She listened to a song. I think it was Mary Had a Little Lamb. And then she asked him a question. What use is it? And he quipped back courteously but firmly, Madam, what use is a newborn baby? That humble little device changed the world. We can look back and see it. That's why all of our lives have soundtracks now. You get the point. How does this hit home? It tells us why a group of men and women and children meeting underground singing songs in a kind of dark room, giving our attention to God's Word, it tells us why that matters. Jesus is telling us that contrary to all outward and external appearances, what's happening right here, right now is hugely important, eternally significant. God is at work. The phonograph will become Spotify, it's certain. Jesus is teaching us in this parable that we have to look into a certain future and then look back into the present and see that that great future kingdom is already present with us in some way. It's kind of like being on the playground with a child who is the heir to the throne. You look and see that child, right? That person is the heir to the throne. In some sense, a great future king or kingdom is right there in your midst. That's kind of what it's like. Just the nature of God's kingdom. That's why what's happening right here in this bunker will ultimately influence the world more than any military, any politician, because what hangs in the balance when God's Word is involved is much greater than what hangs in the balance when militaries and politicians are involved. Are we hearing Jesus? In more than one way, the history of Christianity validates what Jesus is authoritatively predicting right here in Mark chapter 4. Let me give you a few examples. This is precisely what the renowned sociologist Rodney Stark powerfully argues in his little book, great work of scholarship, The Rise of Christianity. It's worth a read. His his whole purpose in writing that book was to make sense of a perplexing fact. This is how he puts it. How did a tiny, obscure Jesus movement from the edge of the Roman Empire dislodge classical paganism and become the dominant faith of Western civilization and further? That's, That's what happened. Stark was trying to make sense of that purely in sociological terms, and he has some great insights. I'd recommend the book. But in the end, sociology wasn't enough. Something more was there, the seed and the power of God's Word, which is why Stark, who was not a Christian at the time he wrote that book, now is. Or I can tell you about another example. Uh, historian W.E.H. Lecky, a man of maybe even more prominence in his own period, he reached the same conclusion. He was a skeptic. He was a skeptic. But even as a skeptic, he was compelled to make this statement. I'm going to read this. It's, on the black, it's, on, it's behind me as well. The character of Jesus has not only been the highest pattern of virtue, but the strongest incentive in its practice. It has exerted such a deep influence that it may be truly said that three simple short years of his life have done more to regenerate and soften mankind than all the disquisitions of the philosopher's and all the exhortations of the moralists." W.E.H. Leckie. Again, the power of God's Word. That's how a riffraff raff group of Christians, Peter, James, Paul, fishermen, they were part of changing the world. That's why. Not because of their own savvy, their own might, their own insight, but because they encountered the Word made flesh, and they spent the, le- the rest of their lives bearing witness to it. They stopped being fishermen, they started being farmers. You can't miss the fact that in all of this and what's happening right now in global Christianity is nothing more than what Jesus says right here about the mustard seed. Look at verse 32. The seed becomes a great bush and all sorts of critters go and live in it. That's not a random image. Jesus picked that image very carefully. That's an image from Ezekiel chapter 31. If you go read Ezekiel 31, you'll you'll see there's a text that says God's kingdom is like a big tree and all the nations are going to find shade and haven and security in that tree. That's what Jesus is saying. Let me put it in Dr. Seuss terms, in case the message isn't getting across. The seed's going to grow into a tree, and the tree's going to become a place for a lot of dogs to gather, just like in Go, Dog, Go. Jesus says there's a party in the tree. He's going to bring a lot of people to it. It's a dog party, a big party, big dogs, little dogs, yellow dogs, green dogs, black dogs, white dogs, all at the dog party. What a party! (laughs) Oh, sure, all this can take a lot of time. And waiting can be tough for us, right? We're an instant culture. We like results. Show me the money. It doesn't work like that with the kingdom. The metaphor is farming, not fast food. We're talking about apples, not apps. But stuff will happen, and it will be incredible. Sometimes we get the privilege of witnessing the whole cycle. Sowing, growing, harvesting, but not always. or often... We reap where someone else has sown, and we sow and other people reap. That's not me, that's Jesus in John chapter four. That's exactly what he says. That process can sometimes span multiple generations, but in the end, something incredible will happen. That's the point of this parable. It wraps up like this. Jesus wants our primary confidence about the coming of God's kingdom to be in the power of God's spirit using God's word, which is why you and I can have hope and joyful steadfastness about the kingdom's growth, despite certain things that can be very, very discouraging. Despite the fact that churches often have puny budgets, which pale in comparison with other organizations around us. Despite the fact that people waking up to the love of God can seem so slow and thin at times. Despite the tattered state of the church's moral witness at times. Despite the sometimes thin quality of our own personal faith. Despite the fact that Christianity is an increasingly awkward worldview, Eastern mysticism and pantheism can absorb all the religious ideas that come down the pipe. But Christianity can't do that. It's not as malleable. Jesus is, after all, the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In light of those realities, it's easy to be discouraged. The only way we can't be discouraged is to know that it is God's word at work that brings the kingdom. Now, holding those little parables in mind, let's look back briefly in closing at those first kind of tricky, enigmatic statements that Jesus makes, verses 22 through 25. Read with me. For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought into the open. If anyone has ears, let him hear, let him hear. Consider carefully what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. For whoever has will be given more, and whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken away. Earlier in Mark chapter 4, verse 13, we saw there's a bit of confusion about some of Jesus' teaching. People don't always understand it. But verse 22, which we just read, makes it clear that Jesus is not intending to be secretive. He's not here to form a clique or an inner ring. To so the contrary, he's here to illuminate, to disclose. The parables are designed to do that. They're like little user manuals for the kingdom. You need to see that to begin to make sense of these verses. Now, there's a phrase in verse 24 that begs for a better translation. In the one we just read, it's written like this. Consider carefully. The Greek word that's used there, which I'm sure all of you know, is blepite. Blepite. That word is used six other times in Mark's gospel. And in all of those times, it is rendered as beware or take heed. Jesus uses that word when he is warning his disciples about rival ideologies, and that's what he's doing right here, right? So you can read this, beware what you hear, he continued, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and so on. Now, the commentators note that these two verses contain familiar economic life maxims from Jesus' day. What's a maxim? It's a strange word. It's not just a magazine. Uh... A maxim is like an adage or an aphorism, and that might not help explain it any better. It's like a little short statement uh, on how you think reality works. We still have them. Here's some. It takes money to make money. God helps those that help themselves, which is not in the Bible. Nothing is free in this world. The rich get richer. A rising tide lifts all ships. Those are maxims. In verse 24 and 25, Jesus is laying out some of the familiar conventional maxims from his day, and then he is rejecting them. He knows how humans think the world works. He knows the maxims, but he doesn't accept them. The parables that we've just read make one thing clear. The kingdom of God does not work like that. The kingdom of God does not work like that. It has different maxims. That's why Jesus is always saying strange and counterintuitive things like, those who lose their lives will gain them. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. If anyone will be first, she will be last. Those kind of odd statements that Jesus makes, it's pretty clear that God's kingdom runs on a different economy. That's what these parables are telling us. They're refuting the conventional wisdom. I couldn't help but think of the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount when I was looking at this. Jesus is doing the same thing there. In the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, some of you have been in my small groups, so we've been through this before. Jesus is he's publishing a list of people who He calls blessed, people who are poor, meek, hungry and thirsty, mourning. Not exactly what we would think of as the winners of the world, not exactly the A-team, not exactly the type of people that the world thinks get things done. That's the church. That's us. I'm sorry to insult you. But you can't have a real relationship with the real God, with Jesus, unless you know you're meek and poor in spirit and hungry and thirsty, unless you know you don't have it all together. And it's for that very reason that God has set up the church to participate in His kingdom in a way that defies the conventional wisdom laid out there in those few verses we just looked at. I think those those little maxims, they have to be remade if they're going to be relevant to how the kingdom of God works. Let me give you an example of what that might look like. You're people who don't have anything, but I'll give you more. You're people who can't do much. You can't measure out much, but I'm going to be fabulously generous towards you. You don't bring much to this team, but I still consider you to be indispensable. And this is my favorite. I don't do karma, I do grace. Those are the kingdom maxims. It's not hard to see where Jesus is leading us in all this, to a place of radical dependence on God, To the recognition that we desperately need, this world desperately needs a new and better kingdom. And for that very reason, we can't build it. We can't build it, God has to. And so we have to depend on Him. But this isn't just something God tells us to do. It's also something God shows us how to do. That's what happens in Jesus Christ. He lived in total dependence on God. In John chapter 12, Jesus says this, another seed observation. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's not just an agricultural observation he's making. Jesus became the seed that was cast into the soil, plunged into death so as to bring forth new life. That involved a serious act of trusting God. And if you don't believe me, go read about Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was hard to trust God's way in that moment. Crucifixion, after all, isn't the obvious way of saving the world, is it? Yet the power of God was at work in that. And it blazed forth in the resurrection. And that same power, my friends, is still at work in the world today, still bringing life to places of death. Have you tasted that power? To be a Christian is to recognize and to depend upon this. And when we're in that dependence, we can sow God's word in the best way possible with our voices and our deeds. We can sow it without pressure because we know the outcomes don't ultimately depend on us. We can sow it without being haughty because we can't take credit. And we can sow it without being condescending to others because we know that except by God's grace, we'd be outsiders too. That's our small but important role in the kingdom that Jesus Christ is building with his word. This is what Jesus is explaining today. His school was, was opened up to explain to us, are you hearing what he's saying?